0: Following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw for our teaching resources, visit ww.shaw.org.nz. Uh, this morning we are in John chapter six, so I want to invite you to open your Bible there. And uh, this chapter that we're looking at today it contains one of the most well known stories in the whole Bible. Uh, Certainly the most, probably the most well-known miracle in the whole Bible, the miracle of Jesus feeding the 5,000. If if you've been in church for a while, if you're a church-going person, you you would almost certainly be familiar with this, right? The the miracle of Jesus multiplying the loaves and the fish and feeding the 5,000. If you had any background in Sunday school, Right, kids that are here today, primary kids. If you've if you've been out in our kids' programs for any length of time, you might have heard this story about Jesus taking the five loaves and the two little fish and multiplying them for thousands and thousands of people. If you were really lucky in your in your Sunday school class or your uh, children's church class, uh, your Sunday school teacher may even have given you a chocolate fish to demonstrate the object lesson of the story. That's a classic tactic: get their attention and hammer home the message at the same time. The old chocolate fish. I don't have any today. Sorry, didn't bring any chocolate fish. Uh, that's a disappointment. But this story, in fact, this, this miracle of Jesus, it's the only miracle that appears in all four of the Gospels. It's the only one. And so there's something significant. And uh, in Israel today, one of the areas that our, that our group is going in a couple of weeks' time is uh, there's a church that claims to be the church of the loaves and fishes. And literally, you go into this church and they have an altar, a rock, where they believe, people believe that this was the place, this was the rock upon which Jesus gave thanks and placed the loaves and the fishes. How do they know? Absolutely no idea. How could you possibly know exactly where that happened? But hey, it would be quite cool if when you went and took communion every week in church, you took your juice and your wafer from the, the rock that maybe, just maybe, was the very rock where Jesus multiplied the loaves and the fishes. That's the thing in Israel anytime anything significant happened anywhere there's about 50 churches that get built uh, layers upon layers in uh, in Israel. Uh, but what I want to do in in John chapter 6 this morning is look not just at this miracle story but at the at the broader context because what John gives us who's writing this gospel is he gives us this conversation that Jesus has after he performs this miracle, a conversation that Jesus has with his disciples and a conversation he has with the crowd that give us a bigger picture and a way of understanding what happens uh, and the significance of what Jesus does in this miracle. But let's start from the beginning of John chapter 6 and uh, read a few verses here. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him. Because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. So, at this point in Jesus' ministry, he has a massive following. There's a huge crowd following Jesus. He's already gained a bit of a reputation as a worker of miracles, he's healed some people. And uh, when Jesus heals people, it's a full healing, it's complete, it's immediate, and this is going to attract a crowd. It would today, it did back then. Jesus is getting quite a reputation, and there's a huge Galilean crowd that is massing around him. Uh, John estimates the crowd is 5,000, which is where we get the idea, you know, feeding of the 5,000, but he says that's just the men, so probably the crowd was at least twice that size, If you, add size, as if you add in women and children, you're probably looking at a crowd of at least 10,000 people. So Jesus has really quickly become an extremely popular figure, a worker of miracles, a prophet, a teacher, a rabbi. He's got a huge number of people clamoring around him. Everyone's wanting a piece of him. And so Jesus goes up on this mountainside, and the crowd follows him. He's got 10,000 people around him, and he turns to one of his disciples and says, where are we going to get enough food to feed all these people? And the disciples say, I don't know. We we don't have that food. It would take us six months to try and buy enough food for all of these people. But then one of his disciples brings forward a little boy uh, who has five barley loaves and two little fish, probably just sardines or something, you know, really small. It's a very meager kind of lunch. And often, if you've heard this story told, often this little boy gets made into the hero of the story. Have you heard it told that way? Where it's all, the story becomes, all because he's a, he's, a, he's a great little kid, you know, he brings his lunch to Jesus and it's a really nice thing to do. And so we jump on that bandwagon and the whole story becomes about sharing your lunch with others. You know, it's like a, a moral lesson about sharing because look at what this boy did and shouldn't we all go and do the same? Now, that's one way of, t- of teaching the Bible, but it's not a good way. Uh, I'm all for sharing, by the way. My, my boys need many lessons in sharing with others. But that's not the point of the story. The, the boy, cute as he is and, and, and kind as he is, is not the point of the story. This is a story about Jesus and who Jesus is. And Jesus takes these loaves and fish he gives thanks to God for them, and he, he distributes them. And as He distributes them to the crowd you know, many of you know the story they multiply. And 10,000 people are fed. Uh, even more, because there are 12 baskets left over afterwards, 12 baskets of surplus bread that weren't even eaten. And, and many commentators think those 12 baskets, it's a symbolic reference to the nation of Israel, the 12 tribes. Jesus is feeding Israel in a sense. We'll, we'll, we'll look a little bit more at that down the road. But the crowd look at this miracle and they love it. This is an absolute crowd favorite, this miracle. I mean, if Jesus was popular before this miracle, now he, he's a rock star. His approval ratings go through the roof after this. In fact, look at what the crowds say about Jesus after he performs uh, this miracle. In verse 14, after the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. So here's the crowd saying, this guy is so incredible. Look at what he-, he doesn't just heal people. He can also create food. He can even feed people. This guy, is a ma- he must be the Messiah. This has to be the prophet we've all been waiting for, the man of God, the son of God, however they understood this. This has got to be the guy. And their, their, their enamoring with him is so strong. They want to, at this point, come and make him a king by force. They want to coronate Jesus right there and then, appoint him leader over Israel, recruit themselves into his army, and lead him in some great battalion to overthrow the Romans. They're just fired up. This is mob mentality stuff. They just love what's going on, and they are so all about this guy, Jesus. And Jesus gives them a stern rebuke for all of their clamoring, for all of their fascination with Jesus. Look at what he says to them. You drop down to verse 26. He says, Very truly, I tell you, you are looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. That's pretty challenging stuff. Jesus is saying, You're not really that interested in what the sign represents. You're not interested in the deeper significance of what's happened here. You're not really interested in the deeper implications of who who Jesus is and what that means for you as as followers of him. What you're really interested in, Jesus says, is just having your stomachs filled. The crowd loves Jesus because he gives them food, because he heals their diseases. The, the, The crowd loves Jesus because of what Jesus can do for the crowd. That's the essence of it. And there's many people today who are crowd followers of Jesus, who love Jesus and and are connected to the church. But it's primarily, when you really peel back the layers, it's primarily because of what Jesus can do for them or the church can do for them. Because in some way, for the crowd, Jesus meets some kind of felt need. Or the church meets some kind of felt need, some kind of emotional need, psychological need, physical need, and they get that need met, and their connection to Jesus or his church is primarily about the meeting of that need. And when that need is not met, their commitment to Jesus becomes questionable, and they start to grumble. The crowd are basically spiritual consumers. They're connected to Jesus because of what he can provide off the menu for them. I remember um, many years ago, when I was associate pastor in this church, working with Jeff Vines, uh, there was one day when I was scheduled to preach instead of Jeff. And uh, Jeff would usually do maybe three out of four messages, and I would do uh, once a month or so. And so I was preaching that day, and before the service started, I was standing at the door, just greeting people as they came in. And there was this group of people that were, uh, I won't won't tell you exactly where they're from, but they, they were from down country somewhere. And they had, they had driven up literally that morning, several hours drive, just to get to church because they wanted to hear Jeff preach. And I was welcoming them at the doors, like, good morning, how are you? Great, yeah, we're here to see Jeff, that's great. And I said to them, well, hey, um, I'm, I'm preaching, this. M- Jeff's not preaching, it's going to be me this morning. And their faces just visibly dropped. You know, they didn't even try and hide their disappointment. You know, Maybe they did, but they didn't do a very good job. It was like they turned up at Disneyland and their favorite ride was closed. You know, they were, they were just not happy. Now, I don't want to be too harsh on them. It, I can understand. They'd seen Jeff on the TV program. They wanted to come see him. That, that's understandable. But, but I just say that to illustrate how easy it is for us to drift into that pattern of being spiritual consumers. And, and we can do this with preaching, can't we? I mean, let's just be honest. You, you, it is possible to do this with preaching, with sermons. Uh, you come, you, you, you get your fill, and you can go away unchanged. You know, you, you, you come because you, you kind of need this this rev up, or top up, or fill up, or battery charge, or whatever it is, but it can so easily just be like ordering off the menu. You know, I'm, I'm just kind of coming to get my fill, and, and you, and you kind of dip in to get this teaching, and then you, then, you, then you just extract yourself again from the community, and you're not necessarily participating in the life of that community, not really embedded in that community, not really contributing to that community, but you just need a fill. You just need to get your teaching fill, and I know how easily that can happen. And you come in and out, and you can remain unchanged. You can do the same with worship. Uh, Often in worship, people get a kind of like an emotional fill from Jesus, you know, and it's great. Nothing against emotions, God gave us our emotions. God wants our emotions to be fully engaged in worship. But it's possible to treat worship as something that just gives you an emotional fill. that You, look, you love these worship experiences because they help you to feel close to God, or, or a conference, or a camp, or a festival, or whatever it is, because it gives you the sense of God's presence. It gives you this emotional filling of God's presence. But when that's not there, it doesn't feel like worship. When that's not there, you sort of wonder what's gone wrong or what's wrong with you or what's wrong with the band or what's wrong with the church or what's wrong with this conference because suddenly the emotions aren't there. It's so easy to engage in worship because you want and you need an emotional fill. You've got to ask yourself, you know, what what is this producing in your life over a long period of time? Is, Is teaching and worship transforming you? over the course of your life? Is it transforming you into the image of Christ? Is it anchoring you more deeply in the grace of God? Or is it just giving you a fill? Like sometimes you can even get kind of a moral or a social fill from Jesus or the church. You know, you're a Christian because that's what your family does. And you're, you are a Christian family and your parents were Christians and they came to church and so that's just what you do. And you've just done it now for so long, it's just kind of what, that's what you're about. And it would be weird for your family if you suddenly didn't come to church. It would be a disappointment to your parents if you weren't a Christian. And really, when you're honest with yourself, that's a lot of what it's about for you now. It's just you kind of have this, this social feel. It, it, it reassures you that you're a good person, it reassures you that you're socially acceptable to be connected to Jesus, to be connected to the church. But you've got to ask yourself like, the simplest question is why are you here? Why are you here? It's just so easy to be here because we're here. This is what we do. We come to church on Sundays and we get. But ask yourself, why am I here? What is this? Is this just a fill of some kind for you? Some kind of emotional, physical, psychological, whatever kind of fill? Or is it something else? And if it is just providing some fill, if you're here just to get your fill, then really you're in this crowd category that Jesus talked about of being a spiritual consumer And maybe your connection to Jesus and the church is primarily about what Jesus and the church can provide for you and how Jesus can meet your needs. And this whole chapter, I think, in John 6 is about Jesus calling people out of that, calling people out of the crowd and calling them to be disciples, calling them to be followers, genuine disciples and followers of his. And so Jesus explains the deeper significance of his miracle. And this is where the crowd starts to get a little bit shaky and a little bit uncertain of whether they want to keep on following. Jesus says in verse 32, Very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. So Jesus is referring back to this uh, story in the Old Testament of when the Israelites were wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. And God graciously provided this manna from heaven. It's like bread from heaven every day to sustain them. And this was the primary way that God looked after the physical needs of his people during that time in the wilderness. And now Jesus talks about himself as the bread of life. And what he's saying is, just as God provided that manna in the wilderness to meet your physical needs, now God has provided me, Jesus, to meet the deepest need of humanity. Far beyond a physical or a superficial need, Jesus has come as the ultimate provision of God to bring true life, to bring real sustenance for living. To, to prevent us from just spiritual starvation where we just kind of d- spiritually die because we can't access God and we can't access true life. But Jesus has come to nourish us with his own presence and the eternal life that he brings so that we can be nourished by the bread of life at the deepest level of our being. And Jesus, the bread of life, can transform us from the inside over time. This is not about being a spiritual consumer. It's not about consuming Jesus. This is about being consumed by Jesus. This is about being consumed by Christ and having our identity so grounded and hidden in him that that our whole lives become about Jesus. He's not just a part of life. He's not just tagged on to life, but He is the central governing reality, the defining reality in our life who influences everything we do, the choices that we make, the decisions that we make, the paths that we take, how we act in particular moments, the smallest of choices, our reactions, our responses. Jesus desires to be the bread of life who is so central that we live out of Him. And who we are is a reflection of who He is in our life, That's a much deeper thing than just coming to Jesus to have a particular need met, whatever that need is. And it's at this point that the crowd start to get a little bit unhappy. And you start to see in the following verses, people start to grumble. Twice people grumble. First it's the Jews, the Jewish leaders, and then it's Jesus' own disciples. They start to grumble against him. And grumbling is exactly what the Israelites did in the wilderness. In fact, it's probably the characteristic thing that Israel did did for 40 years was to grumble against God, against Moses, against Aaron because they didn't like what they were saying and they wanted to go back to Egypt and they ultimately didn't have the faith that God would fulfill the promises that he was making. And here's the crowd again grumbling against Jesus because now he's calling them out of the crowd And he's calling them to be disciples. He's calling them to be followers who feed on the bread of life. And so you get right down to verse 60, and look at what happens even to Jesus' disciples. Verse 60, on hearing it, many of his disciples said, This is a hard teaching. Who can accept? This is not even the crowd anymore, this is Jesus' disciples. These are people who have been with him long before the loaves and fishes. These are disciples who have been baptized by by Jesus' core group of disciples who are identified with Jesus, who are followers of Jesus. But even these disciples get to a point after Jesus has done this whole bread of life talk, they get to a point of saying, this is a hard teaching. And, And you go right down to verse 66, and this I think is one of the saddest verses in the whole Bible. From this time, many of his disciples turned back. And no longer followed him. All of all this crowd that, that, that just love Jesus, they've, they've disappeared. And even many of Jesus' disciples who were apparently committed to him, they've just disappeared. And Jesus is left with 12 guys. Just 12 people. And he says to them, verse 67, you do not want to leave too, do you? He doesn't say that because he's insecure. He says it because he's asking them what they're really about. And where they really stand on all this. And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? He says, Jesus, we've checked out a whole lot of other churches. We, 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 love, we, we, want, we want to be at this church. <laughs> actually, that's probably a bit cynical, poor old Peter. I think, actually, Peter here does get it right. He gets it bang on. He says in verse 69, uh, just before, you have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Peter nails it. He sometimes is quite hit and miss, Peter. But here I think he gets it exactly right. Jesus, you're the one. You have life. You have eternal life. You're the bread of life, the Holy One, the Messiah. Who else would we follow? Where else would we go? You're the only one worth, you're the only one worth building our lives on. But then look at what Jesus says in verse 70, even more sobering. Have I not chosen you, the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. He meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot who, though one of the twelve, was later to betray him. So, in the space of this chapter, you've got a crowd of people, 10,000 people following Jesus. And then in the space of a couple of days, maybe, at the most, two or three days, that crowd is gone and you're down to 12 people. Soon to be 11 people, because one of those guys is dodgy. Now, let me just put it in these terms for you. If you heard about a church somewhere in the world that experienced this, if you heard about a church that had 10,000 people in it and then within a couple of days, it was down to 12, all that's left are a couple of the senior leaders, a few other people, one guy who's got his hand in the offering bag, you know, that's all that's left. Now, what would you surmise about that church? You would think this is a disaster, right? You would assume that something has gone horribly, horribly wrong in that church. The leader, there must have been some moral scandal. There must have been some massive leadership failing. There must have been some huge error of judgment or strategy or mission or value or something. Someone has done something terrible. This church has had a massive exodus of people. That's exactly what Jesus experienced from a crowd of 10,000 to a group of 12 soon to be 11 and it's not because he did anything wrong it's not because he said anything wrong. It's not because of any moral failing or strategic error it's because Jesus preached the gospel. It's because Jesus started calling people out of the crowd and into discipleship grace based discipleship He started calling people to be more than just a crowd, more than just attendees, more than just peripherally, nominally committed and interested to Him. He called people to be followers, to be disciples, to genuinely build their lives on who He is and feed on Him as the bread of life. And the crowd didn't like it. And people left in droves because ultimately most of them were spiritual consumers. I read the story a few years ago of a church in the States uh, near Sacramento called Oak Hills Church. And they were a, a classic American megachurch, really. They, they ran a, a seeker-driven service, a very slick and polished, performance-driven, production-style service. And they attracted a lot of people into the church. They, they did church as a, as, as a production very, very well. Uh, It was high energy, it was high-octane, very entrepreneurial, and a lot of people came to the church. They gained notoriety. Their leaders gained notoriety, were invited to be a part of certain elite circles of Christians and so on. The church got known. They were held up as a model of of seeker-driven church and church growth movement. And these these two leaders that are writing the book, who were the co-pastors of the church, they, they talk about how they got to a point of being so dissatisfied, with what was going on. Like week in, week out, they were just kind of feeding this, this machine, just producing this stuff. They got to the end of one service and the pastor says that it was, an, it was an amazing service, an incredible service and it seemed to have this huge impact and he sat down afterwards with his creative ministries pastor and that pastor said to him, you know, we don't even need God to do this. And he, and he, he was saying that genuinely and soberingly. We don't, we don't even need God to do this. And so they began this process of questioning. What are we doing? Are we just feeding a consumer impulse here? Are we just perpetuating spiritual consumerism by the way that we're doing church? The, the questions that they ask, it's such an honest book. They, they say this, attracting people to church based on their consumer demands is in direct and irredeemable conflict with inviting people, in Jesus' words, to lose their lives in order to find them. It slowly began to dawn on us that our method of attracting people was forming them in ways contrary to the way of Christ. And this is a church that peaked at 1,700 members or attendees. They were doing extremely... They had all the trappings of external success. But they asked the question, how do we present the radical message of Christ in a church culture that caters to the religious demands of the nominally committed? That's a hard question to answer. And they, the, the book really tells the story of how they went through every part of their church life. Their worship service, their discipleship, their mission, every part. And they just worked their way through. And, and they just ask, what does it truly mean to be a church? What does it truly mean to be a church that are, that are forming disciples and not just consumers? And it led to some big changes. They overhauled a lot of things. It led to a lot of people leaving. At the time they wrote this book, over a thousand people had left the church. Just walk to, imagine that, from a church of 1700 down to 700. That'd make you question everything, wouldn't it? And yet they say, we're just dreaming of a different way of being a church. We're just dreaming of a way and just trying to be a church that's not buying into the success-driven pragmatism of our culture, but is taking seriously the words and the life of Jesus and the call of Jesus to be disciples and not consumers. And so they're still on this journey because Jesus is not running a popularity contest. He's not just trying to attract as many people to him as possible. And the church shouldn't be in the business of running a popularity contest and just trying to attract as many people for the sake of attracting people as possible. We're called to be disciples. We're called to make disciples. And there's one thing in this passage that really separates the crowd from the disciples more than anything else. There's one point, and it's it's really the last thing that Jesus says before people start leaving in droves. If you go back up to verse 53, here's the heart of it, I think. He says to them, Very truly I tell you, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. Well, that'll do it, won't it? That's the way to empty the church. Just a little mention of cannibalism there and uh, people are going to be leaving. You're covering your children's ears. This is terrible stuff. Uh, and it's pretty gruesome imagery. Just as a historical side note here, this is one of the reasons that Christians were persecuted in the 2nd in the century. They were accused of cannibalism. Uh, People genuinely thought that when Christians gathered to have the Lord's Supper, they were practicing cannibalism because of verses like this, where Jesus talks about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. But of course he's not speaking literally. Of course he's speaking metaphorically about feeding on his grace, about feeding on the person of Jesus, feeding on his death and the significance of his death for us. This is really what separates a consumer Christian, a crowd Christian, from a genuine disciple of Jesus. A disciple is someone who feeds on Christ, who takes responsibility themselves for feeding on Jesus. And and the primary way, I think, in which we can feed on Jesus is feeding on His Word. This is the Word of God. This is the Word of Christ. And it testifies to the living Word who is Jesus. And if we want to be disciples then our commitment needs to be feeding on the Scriptures, feeding on the Gospel, feeding on the words of Jesus, not just the words in red that are literally the words that Jesus said, but the whole of the Scriptures because all of Scripture points to Jesus. And if you truly desire to grow as a disciple, we're talking about, you know, Lord, help me to grow, help me to be stronger each day. If that's genuinely the desire of your heart, it needs to be expressed in a commitment to practicing feeding on the living word of Christ, feeding. We were talking about this as elders on Wednesday night and talking about some of the things we long to see at Shaw. Some of the, the, the priorities that we that we want to embed going forward. And we were talking about the whole idea of Scripture and the role it plays in our church, what it means to be a word-centered church as a church. And, you know, we are in many ways a word-centered church. We have a high respect for scripture. We we have a high Place a high degree of value and and, and lean on the authority of the Bible. But we talked about how we just have such a desire increasingly to see people move away from being spoon feeders of the Bible to being self feeders on the Bible. Do you know what I mean by that? That it's so easy to come in on Sunday and just be a spoon feeder. And maybe for you, this is the only time of the week where your Bible gets opened. And you kind of, again, it goes back to that idea of just coming and getting your fill. You know, open the Bible, or maybe not even because the words are on screen. Don't need to bring it. And then, you know, that's it. You're done. And it's the spoon feeding where you're completely dependent on me or whoever's teaching to feed you and equip you and help you understand the Bible. God's desire, there is always an importance on teaching Scripture, but God's desire is that as a community, as individual Christians, we become self-feeders who are able to handle this book for ourselves, able to know it For ourselves, because we spend time soaking in it for ourselves, and we take responsibility for developing habits of feeding on the Word of God in our lives, so that you're able to read the Bible for yourself. I'm not talking about buying five commentaries and a concordance and a Greek lexicon. I'm just talking about studying the Bible for yourself, meditating on Scripture for yourself, applying Scripture for yourself. That's what it means to feed on Christ. And then you're going to get a lot more out of the teaching on Sunday anyway because you're already going to be doing your own feeding and you're going to bring all that on Sunday and then keep on feeding. We're called to be feeders. And that means having a personal discipline of feeding on Scripture each day. We talked about this in our series earlier in the year on growing up, the the discipline of Scripture, the discipline of meditating on Scripture, particularly. How's it going? How's it going? It's easy to hit these things one off, isn't it, in a series and preach on it one time. How's it going? How's it going? Getting that bedded into your life. Do you have, right now, a personal practice of feeding on Scripture, slowing down? Can't do this in a hurry. Not talking about grabbing a quick verse before bedtime. Slowing down, being still in the presence of God, and soaking yourself in His Word. Just letting the Word of Christ really work away inside you. Really letting it do its work in your heart. Really feeding deeply on Jesus, not superficially, not hurriedly, really feeding, drawing strength from Scripture, drawing fresh grace from the Spirit of God as you meet Him in the pages of the Bible. Is this a reality in your life? We talk about so many other things, but is this a reality in your life? Just a basic practice. I want to encourage you, if it's not, please start today. Figure out a way. It's got to become a habit It can't be sporadic or random or just when I happen to get around to it, it just won't happen. It has to be a habit. It has to be finding the time and making the time to feed deeply on Jesus. If you don't do that, you can do many other things, but you won't grow. You won't grow as a Christian. You'll end up being very malnourished in your Christian life. You might be a very good person. If you're not feeding on Scripture and and spending the time, you're just not going to grow as a follower of Jesus. And it's going to be then easy for you to drift back to the crowd, for you to be nominally committed and attached to Jesus and the church. If you desire to grow, if you desire to be anchored more deeply in God's grace, make it a commitment to be in Scripture for yourself, feeding on it for yourself. And then there are ways in which, as a church, we feed on Scripture or we feed on Christ together. One of the most important ways that we feed on Jesus when we gather is in taking communion. And we're going to do that in just a minute. To feed on Jesus in communion is one of the most important things that we do. And on the one hand, I don't agree with our Catholic brothers and sisters who say, the, the, the bread, the wine, they literally become the body and blood of Jesus. I don't think that happens. But on the other hand, I think us Protestants are often in danger of making far too little of the Lord's Supper and really minimizing it and its significance. We talk about it just purely as a symbol of something, you know, the death of Jesus that happened a long time ago. And often when we take communion, our focus is on remembering the past. Now, of course, we must remember. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. We have to remember the cross. We have to remember the resurrection. But Paul in 1 Corinthians talks about the Lord's Supper, and he says, when you do this, you are participating in the body of Christ. When you take the cup, you are participating in the blood of Christ, in the presence. So communion is more than a, than a symbol. It's a sacrament. It's a sacrament. A sacrament is something in the physical world, that becomes a means of God's grace to us. Something that's infused with spiritual significance and value. And when we take these emblems, this wafer, this little cup of juice, it's like they open up a portal for us between heaven and earth through which the grace of God flows into our lives afresh in the present. They're a means. Of course, by themselves, it's just a wafer and a cup of juice. But In the context of the gathered church, in the context of worship, with open hearts, with humble hearts, these elements become a means of God's grace to nourish us in the present on Christ so that when you take communion, you can imagine Jesus saying to you, take my body and eat it. Take my blood, drink it. You're going to be nourished by me. You're going to be nourished by my grace in this moment. Communion becomes a way of God pouring His grace upon us all over again. Pouring His love upon us all over again. Pouring His forgiveness upon us all over again. And pouring upon us the power of His Spirit to live as disciples of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. Communion is often more than we've made it. And so we're going to take a little bit more time for communion this morning uh, and just give some space to being still in God's presence to taking the emblems, as we do this, I want to encourage you just to think in in the context of this whole passage and just to ask the question, where are you in this story and in this scene? Are you in the crowd? Are you still just in the crowd? You know, you love Jesus, you love the church, but really, if you're honest with yourself, it's mainly for what Jesus and the church can do for you. And if you're in that crowd, Jesus is calling you today to move out of the crowd and embrace the way of the disciple. And it's not about doing better things and being a better person and keeping rules. It's about becoming more anchored in the grace of Jesus and feeding on Him as the bread of life and developing a deeper and truer relationship with Him than you've had in the past, which is going to bear greater fruit in your life. Where are you? Are you part of the crowd? Or are you truly a disciple of Jesus? Let's allow that question to burn in our hearts as we take communion. And if you find yourself in the crowd then it's not, this is not a time to wallow. It's not a time for self-pity. It's not a time just, to, just to, to worry about that. It's a time to choose something different. It's a time to say, I'm moving away from the crowd today, and I'm going to become a disciple of Jesus, and I'm going to start right in this moment by beginning to feed right now. I'm going to feed on the body and blood of Jesus, be nourished by his grace, empowered by his spirit. I'm going to begin the journey of discipleship and really feeding on Christ. This has been a teaching message from Shore Community Church.